It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions. After the podcast, check out everything ChristianQuestions.com has to offer. Also see our weekly video series releases at ChristianQuestions.com slash YouTube. Now, here's your hosts, Rick and Jonathan. Benjamin Franklin once said, the people heard it and approved the doctrine and immediately practiced the contrary. (laughs) I'm Rick, and this is not your typical Christian commentary as we look at Bible-related topics from a different perspective. I'm Jonathan. This podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone. Folks, talk to us anytime at ChristianQuestions.com or our social media channels. Download some after-episode extras, such as our thorough Seeker Rewind show notes and our bonus Bible study questions available on our individual episode pages. And look for new videos for all ages every week at ChristianQuestions.com slash YouTube. So, Jonathan, what are we talking about today? Well, Rick, our question is, does the Apostle Paul contradict himself? Part 1, Contradiction Series. Our theme texts, plural, are found in 1 Corinthians 10.33, just as I also please all men in all things, and Galatians 1.10. If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Okay, a couple of different things going on there. Folks, the Apostle Paul is a Christian icon. He essentially wrote half the New Testament and has car- as, as he carried the gospel far and wide. He suffered dramatically for his faith, was challenged regularly by those in authority, and even stood up to the Apostle Peter when it was needed. When you read his words, you cannot help but see his love for God and his undying devotion to Jesus. With all of the good that he did, there are many who sit here now, 2,000 years later, and claim he was a self-absorbed, self-contradictory man. They make lists of things he said and wrote and seem to relish his apparent instability. So, did the Apostle Paul contradict himself? Did he say different things to different people just to gain their favor? Coming up in today's podcast, we all know the story of the Apostle Paul's conversion to Christianity. But did you know that it was told three times in Scripture and the accounts seem to be contradictory? Was his conversion real or just a story? We handle this in segments one and two. Was the Apostle Paul just a people pleaser, just trying to make everyone feel good so they would follow him? Some folks claim he was, and their evidence is in his own words. Are they right? Find out in segment three. Did you know the Apostle Paul called himself the worst sinner of all? How does that square with living a Christian life of sacrifice and righteousness? And we can find that out in segment four. And finally, was Paul a devious, self-serving, money-hungry deceiver? Some say he was, and their proof is once again from his own words. Segment five will reveal the facts. So, Jonathan, with us today is Julie for the Contradiction Series. Hello, Julie. How are you? Nice to have you back. Hi. Hi, Rick and Jonathan. How are you? Doing good. Good. Okay. Well, um, so this program is very interesting. Our research team wanted to present you with some tough contradictions because I know that you are not afraid to tackle any sincere question. So I'm used to seeing atheists attacking the Bible, but I was shocked to see that there's this entire group of Christians attacking the Apostle Paul, calling him a false apostle, and protesting his extensive writings in the New Testament. 
and some are extremely sincere and very pained by the results of their studies. So this topic is so big that we're going to spend the entire month of podcasts, the next four, on Paul. Now, the first two are going to be about Paul himself, and the next two are going to address the allegations of how Paul's teachings supposedly contradict with those of Jesus himself. So as always, we're going to make the CQ Rewind show notes available within a week after this episode airs, so you won't miss any scriptures quoted or points we make during the discussion. And for any listener who's just starting out, we're going to add a brief summary of who Paul is in the Rewind. He was originally named Saul and then referred to himself as Paul once he started speaking to a Greek audience. So you'll hear us say Saul, Paul, you know, throughout the program. Okay, so a lot coming up. And Rick and Julie, the only way to find out is to examine the accusations one at a time. Now look, Jewel, my wife and I, named our son after the Apostle Paul because he was such an inspiration to us both. So this subject is very important. And we're going to find that there is a lot of very strong opinion on this subject. So let's set some groundwork. There's four very, very basic rules. These are not all the rules, but four basic rules for examining scriptures that look like they contradict each other. So when you have scriptures that look contradictory, what are these four basic rules that we're starting with? Jonathan, why don't you start with the first one? Sure. The first rule, a copyist error. Occasionally, accident, uh, ancient scribes missed or misread letters resulting in skewed meaning. Julie, well, and you know, generally you can find consensus among Bible scholars because these are some pretty well documented within various translations of the Bible. Yeah. Okay. And, and second, different scriptures often reveal different parts of a story, always gathering all accounts to compare. And, you know, we see this a lot in the New Testament when different eyewitnesses give their account, you know, just like we do today. You have a different eyewitness to something. Everyone tells the story just a little bit differently. And thirdly, clarity of context and an understanding of words within that context help find true meaning. Trivia time. What's Rick's favorite word? (laughs) That's right, context. (laughs) And it's surprising how many times enemies of the Bible will pull out words or phrases and say, aha, without reading the context or understanding the time or the culture that's being described. And that's why it's my favorite word. Anyway, Jonathan, what's next? And the fourth rule, the Bible is to be understood in the context of ages and dispensations. God's dealing with humanity do change as he shows us the step-by-step pathway back to him. You know, and if I've taken anything away from being a long-term listener of Christian questions, it's this. Remember, all scriptures do not apply to all people at all times. And properly categorizing who, when, where, and why sets the biblical record into an organized time plan, which opens the Bible up to new levels. And if you go to ChristianQuestions.com, find the tab called Bible Study with great resources on how to get started with things like all scriptures do not apply to all people at all times. Okay, so there's a lot, a lot here. Let's jump into just an introductory statement from somebody who is a dramatic uh, critic of the Apostle Paul. This is from IRCR Media, and the, the YouTube video is actually called Why Did Paul Lie? Which is pretty dramatic. Let's hear what she says. Um, another reason this is the most 
like obvious reason why I think that Saul of Tarsus is a liar. Most people consider him an apostle because of his conversion on the road to Damascus, where he was confronted supposedly by Yeshua, which would technically make him a Messiah. Uh, I mean, an, an apostle if he was standing in the presence of the Messiah. But there's some inconsistencies in the scripture okay, of his supposed conversion on the road to Damascus. So we're going to talk about those supposed inconsistencies. And, you know, just because you're, you're, you're in, in front of Jesus doesn't make you an apostle. I just want to make that statement. There are lots of individuals in front of him who followed him who were not apostles. I have a lot to say about this. I'm going to hold my tongue for now. So, so let, let's get into the conversion. Contradiction or needing a clear explanation. Okay, the three accounts of the Apostle Paul's conversion have significant discrepancies. So Jonathan, take us through those. Okay, Rick and Julie, in two accounts uh, that says Paul fell to the ground. Let's start in Acts 9 verse 4. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Next, in Acts 22, verse 7, it says, And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, in one account, it says that they all fell to the ground, and that's in Acts 26, verse 14. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So the question is, who's on the ground? Did just Paul fall or did everyone in the group fall? And I'm even going to add the beginning of Acts 9-7. It says the men who traveled with him stood speechless. But Jonathan just read in Acts 26-14, they fell on the ground. So this might not seem like a, a, a consequential detail, but critics say Paul is a false apostle because he was not originally appointed by Jesus. They point to inconsistencies in the story of the road to Damascus. Is con sorry, the road to Damascus, the conversion of Saul, as evidence that it didn't happen, and therefore he's illegitimate. And that's a big accusation. So that's why we want to go through this carefully. Okay, and so now there's one other set of contradictions, Jonathan. Let's take us through those. Yeah, the next problem is in one account it clearly says that Paul's traveling companions heard the voice from heaven. Acts nine verse seven. The men who traveled with him stood speechless hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Now, in another account, it says they did not hear the voice in Acts 22, verse 9. And they that were with me saw indeed the light and were afraid, but they heard not the voice of him that spake to me. So what is the real story? Yeah, are we standing? Are we falling? Do we hear the voice? Do we not hear the voice? Let's dig in. Okay, so that's why we have need to go through this piece of Paul's life, this very first piece of his Christian life, with some great detail. So really, it comes down to this. Somebody once said, the devil is in the details. Is there darkness in these details? Should we be worried? While these details seem small, they are significant. How do we find out what the real truth is? Are you just getting started in your Bible studying? Or are you a weekly listener looking for more after the podcast? Go to ChristianQuestions.com, then click on the Bible Study tab to see our concise companion Bible study questions. Anytime you hear several accounts of a single event, there will inevitably be details that seem to be off. 
Think about yourself. You have a dramatic experience and you tell others about it. Don't the details of the telling vary with the audience and the circumstances? Sure. So why should the Apostle Paul be different? And, you know, it's a very fundamental thought to say uh, we give ourselves a leadway to change the way we tell a story depending on the audience, and yet when it comes to this, we're, we, we, we want to be rigid. So we need to look at this in some, in some great detail. Let's go back to the young lady from IRCR Media, Why Did Paul Lie? And she's going to get into some, some of the details, and we will directly respond to them with the Scripture study following. And if you look in the book of Acts, chapter 9, verse 7, and then you look in the book of Acts, chapter 22, verse 9, he tell, he's telling the same story, but it, his story changes. And that's what happens when liars tell their story. One time he says that those that were with him could see but could not hear this angel. And then in the other version, just however many, what, 11 chapters later, 12 chapters later, he says that they could hear but couldn't see. So first they saw but they couldn't hear it, this angel, him. But then they heard but didn't see. Well, which is it? I mean, if you visually think about it, close your eyes and see him on this road with people following him and this angel appears, or do they, do they see it or do they hear it? Which is it, Saul? Oh, she doesn't sound like she really wants to know the answer, does she? Well, no, and, and, you know, the rhetorical question is a powerful tool, but, you know, you don't necessarily have to be looking for something. You know, and, and she actually misrepresents much of the way the accounts uh, were written. Just a point, you know, she's comparing Acts 9 to Acts 22. Acts 9 was written by Luke about Paul. Acts 22 was Paul's own words. So it's not even a contradiction in his telling his own story. Somebody else is telling his story in Acts 9. Just a point of fact that needs to be recognized. So we need to understand the context and the words, and then we can find an answer. And, you know, before we get too far into the details, we have to remember that Paul called himself the, <clears throat> the Pharisee of Pharisees. You know, this was somebody trained from boyhood in the Jewish traditions and customs of the time. But in order to defend and protect that way of life, he persecuted, even to death, all the men and women who followed after Jesus. But he was willing to leave his home and suffer personal hardship and travel around the country, pursuing with great energy and determination what he thought was right. And Jesus knew that after being converted and shown the true way, he would be just as energetic in following the right course. This was like suddenly your worst enemy, suddenly fighting to the death to protect you. This was a shocking conversion. So as we look at this story, like you said, Rick, there's two people telling it. We've got Luke and we've got Paul, and they're each talking to a different audience. In Acts 9, Paul's companion Luke is telling what happened. Now, he's a physician by trade. He's trained to be logical and methodical, and his focus will be on the fact that Saul of Tarsus is being called to Christ. So he gives minimal details, and he's going to focus on giving a factual account of the spiritual experience. So okay, so Acts nine. So yeah, so Acts nine three to seven. This now. So remember, Luke is speaking. Luke is writing, and he's giving just the facts, ma'am. Just the facts, Jonathan. Let's go through that. And suddenly, a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, "Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me?" And he said, "Who are you, Lord?" And he said. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. 
but get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Okay, so that's the account that that uh, uh, Luke gives in Acts uh, nine three to seven, and uh, so there's a couple of issues we're going to need to deal with. Let's first deal with the standing versus falling issue, because here it says the men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. And Julie, just back in the first segment, what was the other what was the other representation in, in Acts twenty six? Uh, that they they fall to the ground. Okay. That they all fall, Saul and his companions. Okay. So first of all, let's take a look at what the word for stand actually means. And Rick, it means to stand. Well, uh, used go. in various applications, literally or figuratively. Okay. Used in various applications, literally or figuratively. Let's remember that point in terms of defining it. Uh, Julie, we've got some commentary from John Gill on this. Well, just go through that with us. Well, under the words stood speechless, he says it's astonished and amazed. They had not the power to speak one word, nor to rise from the ground and move one step forward. They were as if they were thunderstruck and fastened to the earth, for this standing is not opposed to their being fallen to the earth, but to their going forward and only expresses the surprise and stupidity. Okay, uh, and the stupidity that had seized them. Okay, it, uh, your, your microphone froze there for a second, Julie, and your last few words got cut off. But um, So you've got this sense that you can look at this from a figurative standpoint in terms of standing. Acts 8.38 also uses the word for stand, and it uses it in, in a different way. Jonathan, what is that one? And he commanded the chariot to stand still. And they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he was baptized. Okay, so when you command the chariot to stand still, are you telling it to stop walking? What? (laughs) Well, I mean... Of course not. (laughs) No, it is a figure of speech that says, halt. Okay, chariots don't have legs, and yet the chariot can stand still. We understand the figurative sense of standing still. And when we look at this... Um, the, the, this sense of standing still or standing speechless versus falling down, you know, I think that there's this, this, this figurative sense that says they were awestruck. They were, they were completely beyond themselves and didn't know what to do and, and were almost paralyzed in their, in their uh, certain, certain, certain circumstance there. So when you look at that and you say, well, did they stand or did they fall? Yeah. They did, but it's not being literal. You know, sometimes we forget that words in Scripture can have a figurative sense as well as a literal sense as well. you gotta, you got to give language the ability to do that because they weren't stupid back then. They were very, very well-spoken, and the Greek language and Hebrew language are very, very, very deep in their meanings, and you have that figurative sense. So stood still, falling down, fine, it works because you got the figurative sense. So let's, let's push forward a little bit. Now the hearing versus not hearing of those who were with Saul. This is a little bit more, more of a, a deep issue, because in Acts chapter 9, which, Jonathan, you just read, Luke uses the most common word for hear in, in the New Testament. In Acts 22 and Acts 26, the same word is used for those who are with him, those who are traveling with Paul, hearing and not hearing. So the same word is used to say they heard, that is also used to say they didn't hear. And you say, mm-hmm. aha, 
Mm. Now we've got you. Now we've got the contradiction. How could this not be a contradiction? Julie? So we're going to read in Acts 22 next. This is the second um, recounting of this. And now this is something that uh, Paul is going to actually speak. Now, Paul's in Jerusalem, and he's addressing this hostile crowd that had literally just been beating him. They're accusing him of defiling the temple and telling people to disobey Jewish laws. And some even mistook him for a wanted criminal that had been in the area causing trouble. So now he's in this protective custody with the Roman commander. The crowd is yelling, kill him. And he asks if, wait, wait, if he could talk to the Jewish people in his own defense. So he starts to tell his own story, focusing on his personal spiritual experience that led him to Jesus. Let's read Acts 22, 6 through 9. As I made my journey and was come nigh unto Damascus about noon, suddenly there shone from heaven a great light round about me. And I fell unto the ground and heard a voice saying unto me, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And I answered, Who art thou, Lord? And he said unto me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom thou persecutest. And they that were with me saw indeed the light and were afraid, but they heard not the voice of him that spake to me. Okay, so he says in verse 7, And I heard the voice. And then in verse 9, he says, they heard not the voice of him that spake to me. That word for heard and heard not, that's the same exact basic word. So, Jonathan, what, what does that word actually mean? Well, Rick, it simply means to hear in various senses. Okay. To hear. <laughs> uh, okay, well, let me jump in with the Thayer's Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament, because that says that this word means to comprehend to understand, to perceive the sense of what is being said as another definition besides just, you know, hearing with our ears. So I think the companions heard something, but they didn't hear a comprehensible voice because that message was to Saul alone. So the word itself literally means to hear in various senses and also has the sense of comprehending as well. So, so we've got some pieces. And, and, and folks, look, if you want to understand Scripture and you want to say, okay, does this harmonize or does it not harmonize, you need to be fair with the details. And when we use a word that has a lot of details involved in its meanings, to be fair, you have to put those meanings on the table and say, can it work out? Can it work out in this in this scripture? So let's go a little further. Uh, Julie, we've got another commentary from Matthew Poole. And when we were talking before, you said you needed to translate it into English. So you're going to paraphrase yeah, it's it. It's a little, little oldie English. <laughs> okay. so I'm, I'm going to put a little paraphrase on there. So he said, this may be added to what was formerly said, that the men who traveled with Paul may be said not to have heard the voice of him that spake because they didn't understand it or obey it. They were not converted as Paul was. By the Hebrew language, putting the word hearing, meaning to obey, obeying, as in many scriptures, both Paul who spoke and Luke who wrote this history, they understood exactly how that Hebrew would have been used. You know, it's kind of like I can ask my husband to do something and I know he hears me but he didn't hear me. <laughs> okay. Right? I've never heard of that kind of thing before. How about you, Ray? No, John, I've never heard of that whatsoever, ever, yeah. ever, ever. Yeah. Okay, all right. So I think they, they might have heard, but they didn't 
here. You okay. know what I mean? Well, yeah. And so, so what we're saying is Luke was entirely correct, you know, in, in his rendering when they said, um, and the man stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Uh, the others audibly heard something, a voice maybe it, was not, it, it, it wasn't understandable. It was a simple factual statement from Luke. Paul is also entirely correct. The others did not understand the voice that spoke to him. And that's a key point in this. He's saying that voice was for me so I could hear they didn't get what was being said to me. Their minds were not changed. This is two authors telling the same story from two different perspectives. And Rick and Julie, there's a similar case recorded in John 12, verses 28 and 29, where it is stated that our Lord Jesus heard a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. But the people that stood by and heard the voice understood not the words, but said that it thundered. So Saul and all his company, in one sense of the word, heard the sound or voice, but in another sense of the word, he alone heard the voice. We use the same form of expression in our daily conversations today. If someone speaks to you in a low or indistinct voice, we say, I didn't hear you. We mean that although we heard the voice, we did not understand or comprehend it. Now, my wife, Jewel, she suffers from severe hearing loss. And she may say, I didn't hear you, but yet she heard that I was speaking. She didn't understand the words, comprehension is different than hearing the sound or voice. Okay, so it really makes sense to understand the word has different meanings just like it does today. So let it be in that context as well. And you can use this word in two different ways in the same sentence and everybody follows what you mean. So Julie, take us now to that third account of Paul's conversion. Okay, so... Now, Paul's in Jerusalem, but he's accused of starting a riot. He gets accused a lot, a riot in the temple, <laughs> and there's this plot to kill him. But as a Roman citizen, Paul appeals to a Roman officer for protection, and he's eventually given asylum at Caesarea, and that's a seat of the Roman government. And he formally makes an appeal to Caesar, and that's a big deal. And hearings were held before this Roman official Festus, and King Agrippa is visiting Festus, where Paul is going to finally be able to speak in his own defense right to the king. So here in this third and final account of Paul's conversion, Paul is before King Agrippa in Caesarea, telling his own story from his early life as a Pharisee, and then he'll go up to this conversion. And it's so dramatic, they love this part, that the king actually says, you almost persuaded me to be a Christian. <laughs> So let's listen to Paul tell the king what happened on the road to Damascus in the third and final telling, Acts 26, 13 to 16. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. And when I had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose, I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you. So Paul is wrapping up his witness to King Agrippa now. He's, he's given the story in much more detail because he's in a friendly environment speaking one-on-one. -on -one. 
And that's when we tell the stories with the greatest detail, when you've got somebody who's really listening and wanting to hear you. And he said, I heard this voice. So now as he begins to wrap it up, we're going to jump down to Acts 26, verses 28 and 29, and hear what some say is the contradiction. Agrippa replied to Paul, In a short time you will persuade me to become a Christian. And Paul said, I would wish to God that whether in a short or long time, not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. All who hear me this day. Was he saying all who hear the, just the audible sounds of my voice? Or is he saying all who are unable to understand what I'm saying this day? Understanding for sure. So, folks, it's, it's not that hard. Just look at the words and give the words the leeway that we give our own language and our own communication, and you can see it actually does make sense. Paul is saying, all understand who perceive what I'm saying this day. I heard the voice. The, 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 the people who were with me heard the voice, but they didn't hear the voice. There is no contradiction with that. There absolutely is no contradiction with that. It's a matter of the semantics and understanding how it all works. So let's wrap this piece up. What's our conclusion, Jonathan? Intent, authorship, and language cannot be laid aside when we are attempting to truly understand biblical meaning. And to apply that, you know, those with Paul did fall down as he did, and they did hear a voice, although they didn't understand it. It's pretty simple. <laughs> Folks, this is really not that difficult if we allow ourselves to see the value of what the scriptures are actually telling us in these three different accounts. Subtlety and detail. Without an understanding of both, we simply cannot expect to comprehend the Bible. With Paul's conversion straightened out, our next question is, was Paul a master of double speak? Learning about your hosts is always a good thing. Rick and Jonathan both love studying the Bible and sharing their thoughts with you every week. Did you know they've been doing this program for over 20 years? It started as a radio show in 1998. We moved to an exclusive podcast in 2016 and have enjoyed talking to all our listeners all over the world. Plus, these guys are best friends and longtime students of the Bible. That's part of why our Christian Questions team of volunteers and listeners feel like it's a big family. Talk to us anytime and hear over a thousand archive programs at ChristianQuestions.com. Now, let's get back at it. What's next, Rick? You know, the Apostle Paul said, did, and wrote more in his life than most of us could ever dream of. Naturally, when you're in the public eye and under heavy scrutiny, your words and reasoning come under attack. Interestingly, the Apostle Paul is still under attack 2,000 years after his ministry was complete. And, you know, that, that it's, it's amazing to me, and especially when you have, like Julie, you said earlier, there, there's many, many Christians who say, well, the Apostle Paul really wasn't a follower of Christ. And they start with the fact that, that, that they say he contradicted himself, and then they say he also contradicted Jesus. And as you said earlier, we're going to get into all of that in the next several weeks. So let's go to a different soundbite just to mix it up a little bit. This is uh, from uh, uh, the, the Inquisitor, okay? And this is episode four of their, their podcast. And this is... This is, uh, it says the, the title, The Apostle Paul Was a Liar, Here's the Proof. And again, folks, if you're going to call somebody a liar out and out and put it out in public, I think you need to be really, really 
sure of yourself. Listen carefully to the argument presented here. Many of the early Christians, such as the Ebionites, believed it was necessary to continue complying with the Jewish law. Paul disagreed, but he faced the problem that Deuteronomy supported what the Ebionites believed rather than what Paul was teaching. To circumvent this inconvenience, Paul chose to misquote Deuteronomy in order to support his revised doctrine. Specifically at Romans 10 verse 8, Paul cites Deuteronomy 30 verse 14, but Paul removes the words about compliance with the law, that thou mayest do it, and replaces them with his own words, emphasizing faith. That is the word of faith which we preach. Through this alteration, Paul completely changed the meaning of Deuteronomy 30 verse 14 in order to advance his own doctrine that salvation is obtained through a faith in Jesus rather than through compliance with the Jewish law. Okay, hang on. The man clearly says that Paul chose to misquote Deuteronomy 30.14, okay? And he quotes part of the verse, and at the end of the verse it says, the word, the, 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 the word is very nigh unto thee in thy mouth and in thy heart, that thou mayest do it. And in Romans 10.8, Paul says, the word is nigh unto thee in thy mouth and in thy heart, exactly the same. Then he says, that is the word of faith which we preach. Folks, are you ready to be honest with this? He did not misquote Deuteronomy 30.14. He simply stopped at a point and made an editorial comment to say, hey, the word is nigh to thee, in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is, this is what I'm telling you, for us, that is the word of faith which we preach. This is not misquoting a verse. He just didn't quote the last part of the verse, and the guy says he chose to misquote it. If somebody is... is that's a complete misrepresentation of what Paul did. And apparently, this man does not understand the way the pharisaical rules worked with quoting the Old Testament. We're not going to get into it all now, but it's a fascinating study when you understood how they did it. Paul was not misquoting anything. Is my point clear? It is, Rick. And please, if you want to say Paul's a liar, you better understand what you're talking about. Because this doesn't prove that he is, not even remotely close. Well, that brings us, Rick, to contradiction or needing a clear explanation. Is Paul a people pleaser or a servant of Christ? We're comparing verses. First, Galatians 1.10. If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bond servant of Christ. And now the comparison to 1 Corinthians 10.33. Just as I also please all men in all things, so that they may be saved. Now, this word pleased means, in the Greek, to be agreeable. Okay, so one verse says, uh, if I were still trying to please men, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. The other verse says, I also please all men in all things. And, there's, and you say, okay, how can you do one and do the other? They don't seem to fit. Julie, understanding the context and the words is going to help us find the answer. Let's get started. Well, let's take a look at that Galatians 1.10 scripture that Jonathan quoted first. So briefly, the Galatians were being confused by zealous Jewish Christians who were going around teaching that the Jewish laws and customs like circumcision and their dietary restrictions were going to still be required for new Christian converts. It's like, we'll take all these Christians, but we're going to make you Jewish-ish, right? <laughs> and so Paul taught 
salvation for Jews and Gentiles was now going to be through faith in Jesus, not in rituals and traditions. And he was adamant about not misrepresenting the gospel message. So here's what he says. Let's go in context of Galatians 1, 8 through 10. We're going to go back a couple verses. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. For I am now seeking the favor, I am not seeking the favor of men, but of God. Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. So the Apostle Paul is obviously saying here, it's all about pleasing God through Christ. It's all about the gospel. It's all about staying true to the gospel. The gospel is bigger than you. It's bigger than me. It's bigger than our collective consciousness. And we are all bound to it, whatever it is. It's not about anything less than following the gospel. So, Julie... What's the well, contradiction then? What, what about the people pleasing? Let's oh, yeah. let's read the context. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 9. Uh, let's do 19 and 20. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I may win more. To the Jews, I became a Jew, so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, through, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. Now think about it, Rick and Julie. He's relating as he's witnessing to people the gospel. What a novel idea. <laughs> Relate to the person you're talking with. <laughs> think about in Athens when he came to that city and he saw all of these idols around. And he's like, how am I going to get through to these people? Right. And he saw an idol says, the unknown God. He says, oh, I can use that to proclaim the true God. What an amazing and powerful tool that is for communicating. Yeah, so rather than looking at him as a contradictory, self-contradicting individual, let's look at him as, a, as, as an individual to learn how to communicate from. So, so Jonathan, let's continue, verse 21, because that's the verse. Um, um, no, no, just, let's just continue that. I'm sorry. To those who are without law, as without law, though not being without the law, God, um, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. Okay, so he's saying those who are outside of the law, those who are just, you know, kind of living their own lives, I'm going to be to them like them, but, but I'm under the law of Christ, so I'm going to do it. I'm going to communicate with them and not leave who and what I am and what I stand for. And then the verse um, that people say are, are, is a contradiction, verse 22. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak, I have become all things to all men, so that I may be, by all means, save some. So I have become all things to all men. He's not saying that I'm a chameleon and I'm, I'm blending in perfectly with whatever group of people I'm with in this verse and in the previous verse saying, no, I don't try to please men. He's saying I am communicating with. I seek to identify with people in their present condition so I can say, I understand where you're at. I, I, I get a feel for your experience. And I've had experiences similar to that. And let me tell you what I found out. And, and then being able to witness. So rather than being uh, something of, of, uh, uh, of a contradiction, like we said, it's a really strong tool. 
Yeah, I'm really excited about when we study the Apostle Paul because the more you look at him, the more you realize he was perfectly chosen for the immense job of communicating the gospel message to as many people as possible in a short amount of time. And if you look at his resume, he checks all the boxes. You know, he studied Judaism with the famous Gamaliel, Gamaliel, I think I said that right, who was the main leader of the Sanhedrin, considered to be the greatest teachers in all of Judaism, so that gives him credibility. He describes himself as this Pharisee of Pharisees, so he knows the Jewish law backwards and forwards. And even though he wasn't trained in the Greek schools of speech making, he was fearless, and he never missed an opportunity to talk about Christ. He's Jewish, but he's also a Roman citizen, having been born in Tarsus, Turkey. And so this pedigree allows him to minister to both Jewish and Roman audiences. I wanted to give you a practical example. You know, I was trying to study a specific part of Bible chronology, and no matter what, I was not going to get it on my own. And I went to a brother in Christ named Harry, who I knew had a handle on it. And we sat down, and he said something profound to me. He asked me to tell him everything I knew on the issue so far. He said, let's start exactly where you are and build on that. So instead of explaining something complicated I wouldn't understand, he came down to my level and built up. And that's what I envisioned Paul to be like, where he could relate to these various backgrounds. And in our vernacular, he knew where they were coming from. Because, boy, he must have been a great prolific speaker because people either wanted to follow him or kill him. So he <laughs> was very, very controversial in his day. But, boy, is he uniquely set up for this job. So his his previous experience, even though it was dark in a lot of ways, gave him the, the credentials to be God-honoring, and when he just learned truth through Jesus Christ, he then could take that God-honoring attitude and move forward. Okay, so we're, we're looking at context now, Julie. Let, let's go a little further. Um, you got to un- unmute your mic, Julie. That helps. So when he says, <laughs> I have become all things to all men, that's in that 1 Corinthians 9. 1 Corinthians 10 now begins with Paul using Israel as an example of what not to do because of their idolatry and their giving into temptation. So he speaks of the liberty that we have from the bondage of the Jewish law. In 1 Corinthians 10, 23, he says, I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. So he's saying just because we can doesn't mean we should. And boy, that's a lesson for us today. And he applies this to being respectful of the consciences of others and what might be offensive to them, we could avoid by sacrificing our own personal liberty. Like he used the example, not eating meat sacrificed to idols, even though it was just meat. So here comes the people pleasing statement in that context. That's 1 Corinthians 10, 31 to 33. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many, so that they may be saved. Now, Rick and Julie, he denied himself for the good of others. He disregarded his own advantage. He sought to do everything in advancement of the gospel and the blessing of the people. And also think about this. He did not please all men. He was stoned, beaten, and was put to death for trying to teach <laughs> the gospel. Yeah, that's true. You know, he, he, he certainly got himself into a ton of trouble. So we can see that this idea of pleasing all men in all things is really to be agreeable with them so he could talk to them. 
And that's what it means. That's what the word literally means, to be agreeable so you can get somewhere in your conversation. Okay, it's pretty simple. He is not a people pleaser, but he is a God-honoring servant who communicates with others. So, Jonathan, let's, let's put this conclusion together. The full context of a phrase is critical to seeing its true meaning. And to apply that, Paul is clearly only focused on serving Christ, and he's willing to identify with or to please those outside the gospel to bring them to Christ. He never hints at violating any Christian principles in this process. Okay, and that's really critical. He never hints at... Um, Never hints at any at violating any kind of Christian principle under any circumstance for any reason whatsoever. This is so. This this is starting to make sense. And you know what? This is huge. We can identify with unbelievers to help them see Christ. We just can't violate Christian principle. Some scriptures say we do commit sin, and others say we don't. Where does the Apostle Paul weigh in? We're rolling out new series content this year. Multiple episodes on one topic over consecutive weeks, such as What Do We Do When the Bible Seems to Contradict Itself? Go to ChristianQuestions.com and search for Bible Contradictions to see the full series of episodes and stay tuned for more new episodes and more new series releases at ChristianQuestions.com. Whenever we talk about sin, we're talking about a problem, and this go-round that we're doing now is no exception. The Apostle Paul weighs in hard and fast on this issue, and as is his style, he comes around as unequivocal. It begins to sound like a broken record, but we need to know the context before we know the answer. And Jonathan, you know, I'm an old guy been blessed to study the Bible for a long time, and that is one of the biggest lessons I have learned in, in, in many, many, many years, is what's the context? Because that helps you understand what the truth is. If you want the truth, put things in their proper context. Sounds so simple, but how come there's so much trouble? I don't understand. <laughs> uh, anyway, let's go to another soundbite. Okay, this again is from, uh, here, uh, the, uh, the Apostle Paul was a liar, from, uh, here's the proof, from the Inquisitor. He had remember, said uh, that the, the Apostle uh, uh, purposely misquoted the end of the Deuteronomy Scripture earlier. Now he's talking about two other Scriptures. Listen carefully to this. This is a fascinating issue that he brings up. To take one final example, let's consider the book of Hebrews, which many Christians have traditionally attributed to Paul. In the book of Jeremiah, the Jews are said to be God's chosen people, and their relationship with God is compared to that of a wife and a husband. This verse was unacceptable to Paul because he wanted people to believe the Jews were no longer God's chosen people. So the author of Hebrews got around this problem by misquoting Jeremiah 31 verse 32 in order to make it appear that God no longer had any regard for, for, for the Jews. As you can see by comparing these two verses, the words are exactly the same, except that Jeremiah described God as being a husband to the Jews, whereas the author of Hebrews altered the wording to convey the exact opposite message that God no longer had any regard for the Jews. Again, my point here is not that Paul didn't have the right to offer a different teaching. The point is that he did so dishonestly, 
because he quoted Jeremiah but changed a few key words in order to change their meaning entirely. Man, you know, this is aggravating. I'm, I, I apologize because I told you guys I would not be aggravated. But <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this really is deeply maddening. Because here's a man who was saying, well, look, the, 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 the verse was unacceptable to the Apostle Paul. So what he's doing is he's making a conclusion based on what he thinks he knows. The verse is unacceptable, and he altered the wording. Shame on the Apostle Paul, he altered the wording. Now, none, neither of those things is true, Jonathan. Julie, neither one of those things is the truth of the matter. Now, he's got a point. Jeremiah 31, 32 says, Not according to the covenant that I made, although I was an husband unto them, saith the Lord. In Hebrews 8, 9, it says, Not according to the covenant that, my, that I made. And then it ends with, And I regarded them not, saith the Lord. And he says, See, the, the verse was unacceptable to the Apostle Paul, so he changed the wording. No, he didn't. What this man and what a lot of people don't seem to care about is the truth. And the truth is, the Apostle Paul was quoting from a Greek version of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. This is a commonly known thing. If you look at Bible commentaries, they all talk about it. Paul frequently quotes the Septuagint. It was the most available translation of the Old Testament in those days and was frequently used. And the Septuagint rendering is exactly what Paul said. So don't tell me he changed the words. Why don't you do your homework instead? Instead of saying, the man's lying, why don't you look a little deeper and find the truth? I, and again, folks, I apologize. You know, the Apostle Paul's my brother. He's my family. And I can't, I, I, I cannot sit by and watch him be, uh, be looked upon with this without, without responding. I'm sorry. It, it just be truthful, okay? Have some integrity and do your homework before you're going to make this statement that he's a liar. You know, Trish, just before we get into the contradiction, Jonathan, Trish gave, just gave me a question. She said, I don't understand why someone would need to discredit Paul. What does he teach that's so contrary to Jesus? We're actually not getting into that yet. A couple of weeks, we're going to spend two entire podcasts on what some look at as Paul's teachings versus Jesus' teachings and how they supposedly clash against one another. So that's coming up soon. Now, Jonathan, the contradiction. Contradiction or needing a clear explanation. Is Paul the worst sinner or a sinless child of God? A side note, the contradiction is not Paul speaking against himself. It is between he and John. So we're looking at 1 Timothy 1 verse 15. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. And now in John, 1 John Chapter 3, verse 9. No one who was born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin. So, Rick and Julie, how can these two scriptures be in harmony? Well, Jonathan, the answer is really simple. If you understand the context and the words, you're going to find the answer. So, Julie, take us through that. Well, uh, <clears throat> Jonathan read, no one who is born, and I think that word actually should be translated begotten of God. And last week, uh, you did an entire program on what does born again mean. Um, but yeah, these, these statements are completely opposite. Is Paul the worst of sinners? 
or because he's begotten of the Holy Spirit, he can't sin. And does that mean that you and I can't sin? So here's another example, I think, where context gives us the answer. Paul was not afraid to admit to anyone who would listen that he had committed all these horrible sins in his past. And um, he did that once, at least, in 1 Timothy 1, 12 to 16. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of the Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason, I found mercy so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who believe in him for eternal life. So, so Paul's point here is pretty simple. I've been forgiven for my blasphemous past. I've been forgiven. What an example of hope to others because I was pretty hideous before God through Christ in what I was doing. So, so what he's doing is he's making a point to say, this should be an encouragement to you. The badness of my own life should be helping you. And, you know, the word could be translated chief, worst, or foremost. You know, he's saying he had been an open opposer to the truth. He was transformed from an enemy of Christ and his church to become a friend and a zealous servant. I think he was showing humility in 1 Timothy. Mm, definitely. You know, I want to refer our listeners to episodes 9, 12, and 9, 14 called Will My Regrets Ever Leave Me Alone? There was a two-part series, and there uh, you used Paul as the primary example of how he could let his sinful past make him feel so bad that he wouldn't be able to move forward for the Lord. But, you know, Paul never covered up anything that he did. He confronted these things, and he used them as stepping stones and teachable moments. So, all right, Paul's the worst of the sinners, right? How does he get to the part where he says that followers of God have no sin? If he's a follower of God, how can that be? Let's start in 1 John 1, and then we'll move into 1 John 2. But if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Okay, so John is saying very clearly... We have sin. If you say that you don't, you're deceiving yourself, and there's no truth in you. Jonathan, continue. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. See, so John is emphatic here. He's emphatic. We are all sinners. He's saying it again and again. And now, as, as you said, Julie, we're getting into 1 John chapter 2. He's continuing this theme into chapter 2. And again, we're working up to the context of 1 John 3, 9. It says, okay, no one who is born or begotten of God practices sin. So how do you get there? 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Go ahead, Julie, right before I read that, this. That first, oh, that first scripture that you just quoted, Jonathan, was 1 John 1, 7 through 10. Right. Okay. And this is chapter 2, 1 through 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. 
and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. So our sins are so apparent and so needy that we have been given Jesus as our advocate. An advocate is somebody who sits by you and represents you and, and, and is on your side. The idea of being sinless, okay, because we haven't gotten there yet. All we see is we're full of sin up to this point in John's writings. The idea of being sinless begins to form at the end of this chapter. So, Jonathan, let's move forward to 1 John chapter 2. We just read verses 1 and 2. Let's jump down to 25 to 27. This is the promise which he himself made to us, eternal life. These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. As for you, the anointing which you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as he has taught you, you abide in him. So now it's talking about this anointing, and there's the paradigm shift. Okay, this anointing. What is this anointing? It's the justification of Jesus' blood being applied by granting us the begetting of his spirit. That's what it's talking about. And, and Jonathan, that is clearly reflected in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. So you've got this reconciliation, and we talked about these things just a few weeks ago also. Having been reconciled to God, God can now see us as his children. So because this spirit life has begun within us, this new creature, that is, that is the subject now that John is speaking of when he gets into the third chapter. 1 John 3, verses 2 and 3, and we'll pause there, and then we'll go to verses 9 and 10. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself, just as he is pure. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. So now the transition here is he's talking to us from the standpoint of being anointed. We're still human. We still sin, but he's saying this new creature in you has got this incredible opportunity and incredible privilege. And again, verses 9 and 10. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. So this new creature is what John is calling sinless, and we still, being fleshly beings, daily battle our imperfect, sinful human nature. We're just continually fighting it. So uh, just, you know, the statement, no one who is born of God practices sin, episode 1110, just last week, are Christians really born again? I'd mentioned it previously is that begotten from above? Anyone who is begotten from above, right? Meaning someone who has received God's Holy Spirit, and now they are starting on their new life. So the Second Corinthians talks about this new creature. So you, so we are now old creatures. And so would you say if we sin? When Paul said, "I'm and the worst of all the sinners," is he saying that's his old creature sinning, but his new creature 
doesn't? How does that work? No, actually, that is exactly how that works. And and let me g- g- give an illustration, okay? You know, how, how does this new creature work with inside us? You got this sin- sinless thing inside of you? Yes, because it's the power and influence of God. It is sinless, unequivocally sinless. It's how we use it that matters. It's like having a toolbox, okay? You've got, you've got a, a, a broken down something or other, and you've got this toolbox with exactly the perfect tools to fix it. And you've been given this toolbox, and you have toolboxes sitting there, and it's perfect. It's got everything, and you can completely fix the problem, but you don't open it. Well, it's in your possession, but you don't open it. You use your other tools, and you get a hammer, and that's always dangerous, and you try to fix everything <laughs> with the hammer. Bang, bang, bang. And, duct and, tape. Yeah, and and hammer duct and duct tape. <laughs> there you go. Uh, and, 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 you're, and you're working on it and working on it. I don't understand why it's not uh, completing, because you're not using the right tools. If you open the toolbox... That's where the sinlessness is. That's the new creature. That is perfect within us, but we have to decide to rely on it. Julie, you mentioned last week's episode was 1,110. That means tonight's episode is 1,111. Wow, that is cool. Do you you think we'll ever get to 2,222, Rick? Um, Jonathan, that would put me over 80 years old. So let's probably, just... <laughs> yep, probably you'll be here in 2222. Uh, we'll see. Stay tuned, everyone. <laughs> anyway, so, uh, you know, when you get to this contradiction, it's not because you have to see the context in which John was writing. And he clearly says we're all sinners. And then he clearly says the new creature is not. So if so if he, as long as he's following God's will, he's not sinning. Right. Right. Because, so he doesn't sin. Right. Because but yet he's the worst of sinners when he doesn't open that toolbox and use that Holy Spirit and apply it. it. Exactly. Okay. So it's it's our personal decision as to as to how much of our life is sin. Look, we never can use the toolbox perfectly, but the toolbox itself is perfect. So Jonathan, let's work the conclusion out here. The full context of all verses in question inevitably shows us how to comprehend each context individually. It is only then that we can comprehend two different accounts together. So Paul stamps his own past as being blasphemous and violent. And John shows us what Paul already knew, that once begotten of God's spirit, we have within us new and pure life. It doesn't contradict. It's two sides of the coin. So it supplements rather than contradicts. You just have to understand where each piece actually comes from. Keeping God's word in context actually brings us great confidence. It's sensible, harmonious, and powerful. Some say the Apostle Paul was arrogant and deceitful. Is there any basis for these accusations? If you love our podcast, show us some love on social media. Search for our handle at CQ Bible Podcast, or just search for Christian Questions on Instagram, Pinterest, Facebook, and Twitter. Now back to our discussion. We who live at this time in history should especially know how easy it is to mischaracterize someone we're not fond of. The interesting thing that is, is, is that such labeling and character assassination was happening in a big way, even in Paul's own time. It will be fascinating to see how he dealt with it. And again, I want to I state, and, and, and Jonathan and Julie, you both know this, doing this subject makes me really upset. 
because I truly look at the Apostle Paul as my older brother. And I have this, this, this sense of, you just don't mess with my family. They are precious. He didn't do anything wrong. The things he's being accused of are all off. They don't belong. And you just need to fix it by f- digging deep and finding the truth. Don't mess with my brother, okay? Just don't. Just, just don't. It's not a good thing. It's not a good thing because it is done. It's either done out of, out of arrogance or ignorance. And, and when I say ignorance, I'm not saying somebody's ignorant, but I'm saying they're ignorant of the truth that's below the surface that is readily accessible if you decide to look. Let's go to the next contradiction. Contradiction or needing a clear explanation. Is Paul a deceitful minister or an honest one? We start with 2 Corinthians 12, 16. Nevertheless, crafty fellow that I am, I took you in by deceit. Ooh, that doesn't sound good. Sounds really bad. (laughs) Yeah, it does. It does. Next, 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 3. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. So the word crafty from the 2 Corinthians means all working, that is adroit, shrewd. And I had to look up the word adroit. It means clever or skillful. Okay. (laughs) Because that's not a word I'm used to. And then the word for deceit means a trick, bait, that is figuratively wile. Now, wile is spelled W-I-L-E, and which means um, tricks or ploy. You know, wily coyote in the Roadrunner? <laughs> really, Jonathan? That's what that means. <laughs> so Jonathan's <laughs> quoting cartoons. Here we go. <laughs> okay. okay. That's, actually, well, that's actually a great example. It really is. So, all right. So in one verse, he says, crafty fellow that I am, I took you by deceit. In the other verse, he says, I would never take you by deceit. Okay, Julie, you have to understand the context in the words, and we find the answer. How do we go about this? Okay, well, that, that, that crafty, I took you in by deceit, was 2 Corinthians 12, but let's go back into the context of 2 Corinthians 11. But let's go back a little further even. Back in the second chapter, 2 Corinthians 2.17, Paul acknowledges that there were these false teachers who were getting rich off preaching the word of God. And that kind of sounds like today, doesn't it? They even carried these false letters of authenticity to show their authority. Now, Paul never preached the gospel for money. Here in chapter 11, he's going to use sarcasm to make his point that he's different from those teachers and to defend himself against those critics. He had a lot of opposition from both inside and outside the church at Corinth who made many charges against him. And I'm going to put a whole list of some of those charges in the CQ Rewind show notes, but let me just throw out a few for you so you can see what he was dealing with with these Corinthian area. They opposed to some of his teachings, like that circumcision was unnecessary to the Gentiles. They denied he was an apostle, that unlike the 12, he never knew Christ personally, that his witness was secondhand and not direct. They claimed his teachings weren't fixed and consistent. They accused him of bragging. They insinuated that the collections taken for the poor at Jerusalem were probably, in part at least, for himself. And they even asked if it was certain that he was a Hebrew at all, of pure blood, maybe he was whole or part Gentile. And ironically, many of these similar charges are what people on the internet are opposing Paul today. And it's funny because he's already answered these these questions, these, these critics. So after all he did for the church at Corinth, he's going to use a teaching tool 
mimicking his critics to show how ridiculous this charge of him doing this for money is. So it's kind of like, let me paraphrase, he's saying, yeah, I'm so sneaky. I come in here, ask for no money, support myself for a year. You offer me nothing. I do everything I can to teach you. Everyone hates me. But yeah, I'm just tricking you into somehow stealing everything. That's what I'm doing. Yeah, I'm so crafty. Right. and It's, and it's ridiculous. It, it is. And it sums up what he's doing. And, and it's brilliant. It's brilliant communication. Because yeah, it's the point across. Right. And that's the point. And that's why Paul was chosen to do what he was. So, Jonathan, let's get started with that 2 Corinthians 11.1. 1. And remember, sarcasm here. Yes. I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness, but indeed you are bearing with me. Okay, so he says, mm-hmm. I'm going to go down this foolish road with you. He's telling them that. So he's going to continue the sarcasm while calling out those who deceitfully use the name of Christ. And we jump down to 2 Corinthians 11, 12, and 13. And these, these are the individuals he's pointing to with his sarcasm. But what I am doing, I will continue to do so that I may cut off opportunity for those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the matter about which they are boasting. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And Julie already gave us some of the background on what these individuals were doing. So he says, this is, here's who I'm talking about. And now we go to verses 19 through 21 of 2 Corinthians 11, and sarcasm is going to go into full bloom here. For you, being so wise, tolerate the foolish gladly. For you tolerate it if anyone enslaves you, anyone devours you, anyone takes advantage of you, anyone exalts himself, anyone who hits you in the face. To my shame, I must say that we have been weak by comparison. But in whatever respect anyone else is bold, I speak in foolishness. I am just as bold myself. So he's saying, you're so wise and you tolerate those who step on you and take advantage of you and slap you in the face. He's telling them, look at what you're doing. You're listening to the lies and avoiding the truth. So now we move to the 12th chapter, and we're going to see where his sarcasm brings him. 2 Corinthians 12, 14 through 16, we'll do 14 and 15 first. Here for this third time, I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden to you, for I do not seek what is yours, but you. For children are not responsible to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. If I love you more, I am I to be loved less? So he's saying, I'm coming to you for a third time. I'm not going to require anything from you. I'm coming to you because I love you as your parent in Christ, if you will, I, and I'm coming to give to you. Verse 16. But be that as it may, I do not burden you myself. Nevertheless, crafty fellow that I am, I took you in by deceit. There's the sarcasm. Julie? Yeah, the living translation puts verses 14, 15, and 16 in this way. I don't want what you have. I want you. I will gladly spend myself and all I have for you, even though it seems that the more I love you, the less you love me. Some of you admit I was not a burden to you, but others still think I was sneaky and took advantage of you by trickery. So wow, yeah. So he, what, this is there's not a contradiction. There's a man who's reasoning through a serious issue. And Jonathan, let's go to Second Corinthians twelve seventeen through nineteen. 
Certainly I have not taken advantage of you through any of those whom I have sent to you, have I? I urged Titus to go, and I sent the brother with him. Titus did not take any advantage of you, did he? Did we not conduct ourselves in the same spirit and walk in the same steps? All this time you have been thinking that we were defending ourselves to you. Actually, it is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ, and all for your upbuilding, beloved. All for your upbuilding. I've been doing everything I've been doing to build you up. Uh, Julie, we've got a commentary also uh, from uh, John Gill here uh, about these verses as well. Okay, so John Gill said, these words are not spoken by the apostle in his own person of himself, but in the person of his adversaries, like what they were saying about him. They insinuated to the Corinthians and objected to the apostle that though he did not receive anything from them in his own hands, yet he craftily and cunningly made use of others to drain their purses and receive it for him, which is suggested in the next clause where he said, nevertheless being crafty, I caught you with guile, so say the false apostles of me. In other words, charging him with a wicked and criminal craftiness by making use of other people in a sly, underhanded way to get this church's money when he pretended to preach the gospel freely. And, you know, you have to wonder, what would be Paul's endgame? Like, they're accusing him of really the long con, you know? He's not making any money. He's been with them for over a year. Uh, Nobody likes him. He's been shipwrecked, imprisoned, and beaten, and all he's doing is proclaiming Christ. He's not getting anything out of this monetarily. Right. So the, the accusation just falls flat on its face. Jonathan, go ahead. And Paul remembers Jesus' teaching in Matthew 10, 16. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. Paul exercised wisdom in his dealing with those whom he desired to bless, hiding from them for a time things they could not appreciate. When witnessing or sharing truth about God with others, we should do the same. Absolutely. So it, he's living up to the standards and just gets misrepresented because he's living at a very difficult time amongst very difficult people. Julie, let's okay, so, go ahead. So wrapping this part up, remember at the beginning of this segment, we had Second Corinthians text that said he was deceitful, and we now know he was being sarcastic, but we compared it with the one in First Thessalonians that said he was never deceitful. So now let's take a look at that one. That's 1 Thessalonians 2, 1 to 7, that alludes to some of the other abuses Paul endured in different locations. Now here he's talking to the church at Thessalonica in a sober and sincere way, since no one is aggressively challenging him. So he's not being sarcastic at all. Right. So he's straightforward here. Okay, Jonathan, let's go with that one. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. Okay, it's not by way of deceit. It's pretty simple. He's saying it's coming from Christ. And continue those verses. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor do we seek glory from men, either from you or from others. Even though as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority, 
but we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. So he's saying, yes, I had to assert some authority as an apostle. That's my responsibility, but I'm also caring for you as a, and think about the imagery as a nursing mother cares for her children. They are, they are sensitive. They need the care. They need the love. They need the nourishment. And he said, that's what I'm here for. Nothing more, nothing less. That's what I'm about. That's a clear representation of humble, truthful, and spiritual apostleship. Okay, we are needing to wrap this whole thing up so we can see this First Thessalonians verse tells us what Paul is all about. And in the verse in, in 1 Corinthians, it, or 2 Corinthians, it was about using sarcasm. So there's not a contradiction. It's a matter of understanding the context and seeing he's painting a very large picture. So Jonathan, let's, let's put this conclusion in order. The full context of any scripture will reveal the intention and attitude of the words spoken or written. Understanding is simple with context. And the practical application of that is that the Apostle Paul wasn't crafty or deceitful in his ministry. Like any good speaker, he didn't shy away from using drama or even sarcasm to make his points. And I think that's what we have to really focus on in dealing with this whole thing. So, you know, when we look at these supposed contradictions, what we need to understand is that the Apostle Paul was a brilliant man who was well-educated, but more than either of those two things, he was called of God through Christ. He was given God's Spirit and Christ showed him what the gospel was, and he took that and he brought it to others unceasingly for his entire life. There is no contradiction here. And folks, next week we're obviously going to be continuing this discussion for the next three weeks, actually, because there's a lot to talk about, because those who look at the these circumstances just say, look, you, you, you got you, you to gotta admit it. He's, he's not doing it right. No he is being spiritually minded. We just need to be able to understand it. The Apostle Paul doesn't contradict himself. Think about it. Folks, listen, we really want to hear from you. Give us your feedback or send us your questions on this episode and other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Also, a big part of spreading the word about our program is subscribing to Christian Questions in iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, whatever your favorite podcast channel is. Please, Rate us, review us. We greatly appreciate it. And as we mentioned, coming up next week, does the Apostle Paul contradict himself? Part two. You already know the answer. The question is, how do you know? Talk to you next week. <laughs>